Welcome to the pre-show. Welcome to the pre-show. Yeah. So, biggest news in music. What is it this past week? The... I don't know. Are you, is that a question or are you... Yeah, it's a question. Um, did you watch the Canadian uh, concert? I did. The Stronger Together. Stronger Together? Yeah, yeah. Big numbers. Huge. Oh, yeah, that's right. I saw you tweet about the largest... What? A third of Canada watched it. Yeah. Finally, we've, uh, we have now a Canadian event. That is the most watched, the quintessential Canadian event, I think. Although, I was like, I think I was 10 minutes late watching it. Um, Drake must have paid a lot of money to be the closing. Only act. in Canada, only in Canada yeah. does the Prime Minister come before Drake. I didn't get that. I didn't, I didn't get that. Well, I knew Drake was coming on. I okay. thought I had missed it because I hadn't seen it. <clears throat> but then I was expecting Drake to do a concert of some sort, but he just... Talked from his he just fancy talked, living room. Yeah, yeah, from his fancy uh, living room. Not too far from where I live, by the way, Greg. I, I, I pass this home every time I... I don't go to work anymore because I work from home. But if I were, I'd, I'd drive by his home. You drive by his home? Not directly by, but if I was like Bautista and I was on the bus, on top of the bus traveling, I could probably, back in his prime, throw a baseball and hit it. No, I could probably have to hit the baseball. But he's close by. He's close by. I'm, his I'm new house? To... His new house. Yeah, he's in the Braille Path. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you know where I live? I'm starting, I'm starting to question. <laughs> so that that was not the biggest news in music, though, Greg. So you were baiting me. Yeah, I think I think the biggest news in music was the biggest concert ever held. Huh. <coughs> Travis there's, Scott. There's a, mute, there's a mute button, right? Oh shoot! Yeah, where is it? Just saying. Carry on. Okay, I have to make sure. Carry on. Um, 12 million concurrent viewers watched Travis Scott on Fortnite do a 11-minute concert. Did you watch this? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, my goodness, Greg. You are so old. Okay. so <laughs> Travis Scott, Grammy Award-winning rapper. Um, went on Fortnite, or he he collaborated with Fortnite, and they created a mini show uh, of current hits and uh, new releases. And uh, you know, so as people are playing the game, um, they could attend as their avatar attend this concert within the game. And uh, there were 12 million people that watched it live. And then if you add in all of the people that have subsequently watched it, recordings on YouTube, um, I'm curious if this is in some way part of 
the future of of concert going of 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 music in, in some way, shape, or form. I think there still be live shows um, that we will attend in person, but similar to um, I think it was last year, Abbas was doing a a three D tour, a hologram tour or something. Um, I know at Coachella there there's been hologram performances. Yep. Um, and I'm wondering if this sort of Fortnite Twitch activation is another part so of the, the Fortnite side. Is it because like, is, is that the amount of people that were on Fortnite at the time, whether they were there for the concert or not, or were, or is that the number of people that actually, and how do you tell that they were there? And I, I'm going to ask for forgiveness for my ignorance of yep. Fortnite and Travis Smith. Scott. Oh, Scott, sorry. You did that on purpose. Uh, I did. I did. <laughs> no, Fortnite is one of the biggest online games. Yes. Um, and so, obviously, I think the numbers are inflated because of people staying home. Because you've obviously got more... Uh, and I'm seeing this through work. You've got more people playing online games, right? Um, so that's that's there. Um, how many people tuned in just to watch Travis Scott? Um, if they're not a Fortnite player, um, they probably wouldn't have, right? Um, and they would have waited for the sort of recordings to all come out. Because people will take their their streams on Twitch and upload it to YouTube. Um, but it was I had seen a couple of articles I think right before it happened, or or soon after there you it happened. Go. See, see how I did that. There you go. And uh, I paid no mind to it, but I said, "Oh shoot, I better pay attention to this." Because this is so, this sort of touches two of my worlds, both the uh, music, yep, and the uh, the gaming side of things. Your kids, but my son, will and my niece consume music this way. My son does not understand concerts yet. He doesn't get why he can't. Because you're a bad dad. I've taken him to concerts, <laughs> okay. right. but he he's he's at that age that. It's like, I don't, why can't I listen to the music that sounds really good on Spotify or on YouTube? Why do I have to go in there? Have you taught him that it really already? doesn't sound that good on Spotify? But anyway, carry on. Quality wise. Well, that's, that's, that's right. That's the debate that everyone's having whether digital it's sounds as good as analog or whatever the case may be, right? Um, if well, everyone there's, is there's used there's to analog, there's CD, <clears throat> and then there's streaming. So. Yeah, but everyone listens to music, and when I say everyone, I On mean most people. iPods. Yeah, the same earbuds you and I are wearing right now. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They listen to it. It's not lost on me. I mean, I'm 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 guilty of it. Right. So they're listening to it on their phones. My niece, twenty four seven, when she's at home, outside of at the dinner table, or when we're all gathered in the living room, has her has her earbuds in. Um, listening to sure it's not you music on Spotify. <laughs> no, it is not. 
<laughs> it is not me. Come on. Yeah, no, I know. I, I realize that for sure. Um, so, so I, I would like to think that I, I would see, this is a two different things. So the Travis Scott thing on, on Fortnite streaming to the earbuds. Yep. I got to question the quality of that. The ABBA thing, if you're going to go to Casino Rama, yeah. which is probably where it was or something like that, right? Sure. You're going to go to Casino Rama to the theater and it's going to have the big sound. Yep. That's very different than listening on your crappy. Well, well hold on a second. Did you watch the, um... shoot, what's the guy's name with all the tattoos? Post Malone. Post Malone. That's the biggest story of this week. It's not. You just nailed no, it. That's, that's, not, that's no. the biggest. Yes. No. Yep. No. Yep. No, that's not the future. How is that the future of music? <laughs> that's, the future music. that's the biggest story. It might have been because he's a pop star. That was. Uh, what, what, no, what, there's what no way. What made that story? What made that story was how many people, including myself's minds, were absolutely blown by the fact that Post Malone Wait a second. pulled that off. Wait a second. Did you not watch, I don't know if it was the Grammys or one of these award shows where he played with your favorite band? Um, Smash the Puffins? No, Red Hot Chili Peppers. I did not see that. How did I not see that? So he played. He played with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And when I saw that, I said to myself, is he changing now from a pop like a pop singer, yep. pop slash rap. I don't consider him rap, but pop singer to getting into rock. But then he released, he's released an, at least one album, if not two albums since then. And he still sort of stays in that pop lane. And so when he did this, I'm thinking, okay, who is Post Malone? Is he, a, is he does he really want to be a rock star? And I think that might be one of his songs. Um, or does he want to be a pop star? And I think he wants to be a rock star, but he figures there's more money for him right now in pop music. And so I was not surprised that he pulled it off because, you know, he's he's got... Because he played with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't see that. So, and so But I do know, like, Dr. But it Jones was good. and a it bunch good. of people were like... Holy sure. shit, where did this come from? But you only see, yeah, but that, again, you know, old white people with white hair. Right? <laughs> you know, my... We're going to we're gonna have to tag the good doctor in on this, but go we ahead. We have to. Carry on. With but, great um, hair. He's got beautiful hair. He's got the hair. best hair. Why do we keep coming back to his hair on our it's podcast? Because I think we're jealous. <laughs> That's probably it. <laughs> That's probably it. Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hey, what's up, people? This is your boy, Uncle Vim Rock, from the Grammy Award-winning legendary hip-hop group, Naughty by Nature, and welcome to the music.
Awesome, Matt. Thanks so much Welcome. for joining us today. Welcome. All right. How you doing, guys? Good, good, good. You're in uh, New Jersey, yeah? Yes, my hometown of Illtown, East Orange, New Jersey. How how are things there, man? What what's uh, what's life like in quarantine in New Jersey? Well, I mean, this is my hometown, and for one, I feel so blessed. I made a conscious decision to move back to my hometown about five years ago. I've been working close with the mayor and his administration, and you know, every segment of local government. So. While this pandemic is going on, not only am I helping out, but I definitely have direct access to the local authorities to make sure I'm safe, my family is safe, and, you know, my community is safe. But, you know, again, I live in an urban community, and Mm -hmm. it's basically minorities here. Mm -hmm. And as people know, this pandemic has you know, disproportionately affected our community. So I have people who work in our local hospital, East Orange General Hospital. As a matter of fact, I have a childhood friend who's on a respirator right now. He's not looking good. You know, I have a guy who works there and he's one of the few people who could even get in there to see him. You know, so we're dealing with it here. And, you know, my girlfriend and I are home quarantined. And, you know, we're staying safe, but doing what we can to support our go- local government and our community as a whole. That It's interesting that you, you brought that up, Vin, because not a lot of people, well, at least here north of, north of the border here in Canada, have talked about how this, you know, we talk about how we're all in this together, right? right. Literally, the whole world has been impacted by this, not just one city, not just one country. But no one has talked about that there's a sort of a, 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 an invisible uh, population that no one's talking about it. And, you know, you talked about yourself, you know, the African-American population in, in the States um, have been um, disproportionately impacted by this. You know, and, and so I, I start thinking about what about all these homeless people, people that don't have a home to quarantine in? Right. Um, what do you know? You're involved. Uh, with with your local um, government there, what why has this impacted the African American community so much more? Well, for one, I saw a report. Um, you know, before I get to that, on the homeless population. You know, especially in New York City, they surveyed around ten to sixteen thousand homeless people. Virtually none of them contracted COVID, and oh. perhaps. It's because they're exposed to the elements and they have a stronger immune system, you know. Hmm. But when it comes to the African-American and the Latin community, you know, the normal uh, uh, inner city community, it's it's based on bad diet and underlying health conditions. So, hmm. you know, in, in our communities, we tend to have diabetes, hypertension, you know, a lot of salty foods. And these are the kinds of conditions that once COVID, you know, you contract COVID, it just ravages through through the body for some reason. You know, people with respiratory problems, it, it just happens. So in our communities, if we're disproportionately have bad health and, and you know, not necessarily have access to the best health care, <laughs> you're vulnerable. Yeah, that's, and that's that's into something that that I think we see a difference between up here in Canada and what you guys are dealing with in the states is that access to healthcare. I mean, you know, that's 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 got to be having playing a huge impact on, Abs- on people getting getting care. 
Right. So for the life of us in America, we're like, how come other countries, you know, Europe, Germany, you know, Canada, even they're able to have universal health care plans out there. And, you know, their their country is able to care for their citizens and we just can't get it together. Everything is privatized and, you know, either you can afford it or you can't. And even people who are affording it can't afford it, you know, especially yeah. when it comes to these prescription drugs. So, it just is what it is. And we live in an entirely different system here that, you know, is being addressed, but it has to be corrected, not yeah. only addressed, but actually corrected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, and you listen, you're not just staying at home. You've, you've, I, I've read, you guys have done some amazing things. Um, is it 30,000 PPE you've, you've helped to sort of raise and distribute locally? 10,000, 10,000 three-ply uh, PPE masks. We're distributing them uh, amongst three cities, Newark, East Orange, and Irvington. So it's just a drop in the bucket compared to our population here, but we plan on doing more. I've partnered with a, a developer group, the Money App team. Uh, they do hard money lending, and they partnered with the mayor of Newark. So, you know, they're servicing the banking and financial needs of our community. And this is just part of the play, you know what I mean? Just helping out with PPE. And, you know, we're here to service the community. We're here with our sleeves rolled up, not in Beverly Hills, you know? No, no, no. <laughs> and I know you're also, you're still going to, uh, to pick up uh, food at a safe distance from some, some local restaurants as well. I saw a couple of photos. Yes, yes. Um, us and, um, oh, that's our friend's restaurant, right? Um, Sadia, my girlfriend's best friend, Sadia. So, you know, we're cooking a lot more at home, my girlfriend, because yeah, yeah. she's a bartender, but we're cooking a lot more at home. However, we still do go out and support our um, local restaurants, you know? So we have a lot of friends who have restaurants. We frequent our favorite restaurants, the ones who are open. And, uh, you know, we like to advertise and, and help them out in this times. It's crazy. I'm pressing yeah. it. Times, it's, yeah. it's, it's funny because we were just talking about this earlier that, you know, where we normally record from in Toronto is a, a micro or macro brewery called Radical Road um, in down, no, just outside of Leaside downtown. And um, they, they actually had to put a notification up today that they've sold out of takeout beer because they have their sort of bottle shop. And right. they've sold out and they need two days to replenish. And that like, it's amazing that we're changing our behaviors. We're supporting local more than we ever did before, it seems. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Actually, there's a um, place, Hook and Reel, here that they, you know, sell snow crabs. Well, it's a seafood restaurant. They sell crabs, period. But people love crab for some reason. And <laughs> the restaurant got shut down. And people are doing takeout. They were doing delivery with like DoorDash or what have you. They stopped doing that because the demand was so high. So you can only walk up and walk Mm -hmm. into the restaurant to place your orders. You can't even call in ahead. So they're like, well, our business is exploding. We can't even keep up with the demand now. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, so there's a shift. I mean, everyone is definitely new to everyone, but there's a great shift. It's definitely a new world, and we all have to adapt. You know, to yeah. the new norm. Yeah, you guys. You guys also did that uh, 
that I don't know. Is it the house party with new kids on the block? That that song that just dropped not too long ago. Oh my goodness, yes, that song just dropped about three days, four days ago. Yeah. But even prior to that, we did the hip hop array remix with uh, Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks. Okay, so let's okay. So so you know you look at that and you go, <laughs> Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks, naughty by nature. Like right. when whenever are these two ever gonna meet? outside of coming together to raise money for a pandemic. <laughs> like, exactly. so, so I've, I've heard you tell the story, but um, when was the first time that you saw her video? Um, it was one late night. I was up uh, about one in the morning and a fan inboxed me, you know, on Instagram. It's like, hey, Vin, have you seen this? And she had just posted the video. So, yeah. you know, she was, she was, um, she had contracted COVID, her and Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. And she was, um, you know, just quarantined and she remembered the song. You know, she remembered Hip Hop Array from having to memorize it for a movie role. And, you know, according to Rita, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease that runs in her family. So Mm. she always does brain exercises. And according to her, while she was quarantined, she was like, I remember how complex that song Hip Hop Hooray was for the movie role. Let me see if I remember it as a brain teaser. She decided to record herself reciting this song. Then once she finished, she's like, yeah, I remember it. I should upload it. She's like, either this is going to work or I'm going to get trolled like hell. So she clicks in and uploaded it to, um, you know, Instagram and the thing went viral. So when the fan uh, sent it to me, I went on her page and I thanked her for giving props to our song. And a day or two later, she inboxed me and was like, hey, then this thing went viral would you guys want to do a remix or make it an official remix? And we could uh, actually raise money for Music Cares because she is a musician outside of being an actress mm-hmm. and she worked with Music Cares before. So Music Cares helped a lot of musicians and band members, stage and lighting crew who are out of work or going through, you know, things or uh, suffering from addiction. So, you know, unfortunately, our industry will be the last to get back to normal. So we'll yeah. be out of work with regarding touring for a while. And a lot of that support staff and, and band members will be out of work. So that was a, you know, that was a good cause, man. It was a good cause, a good call. And Rita, she's the woman, man. I call her Riri. I know Rihanna is called <laughs> Riri. I got my white girl Riri now. There you, you go. <laughs> there you go. And then we just happened to come right behind it. Donnie Wahlberg called us and was like, yo, we have this song House Party and we made that happen. And that thing is going crazy. We're about to approach a million, you know, views on YouTube in less than five days. That is awesome, man. That that is really, really good. How did you get involved with with like community and local government? Well, we've always been that way um, since hands on. I mean, unfortunately, we are street kids. So Mm. we come off the block and we're not proud of being street kids and curb serving back in the day. But, hey, we were serving the community. We were part of the community. And I don't know if there's any honor in trying to look out for your block while you're there. I mean, there's certain things you have to do to keep peace on your block. You know, you don't want chaos on your block if you're out there running business. So you have to mind the neighbors. You have to be courteous to the neighbors. So we've always 
you know, participated in that level. But once we came off the streets and we were naughty by nature and were successful, you know, we've always had our community since high school support us. Yeah. So once we came up as Naughty by Nature, we were always involved in the community. We were always hands-on. We would always, you know, throw block parties and give the kids some stuff to do. And we learned how the political machine worked because one time we wanted to have a block party. Well, take the block party off the street because, mm. you know, we lived on city streets and we would just throw impromptu block parties mm-hmm. and it would just totally congest the streets. Us trying to be, you know, responsible said, hey, let's go to the park and we want to bring this thing to the park. But we knew we needed a permit. And at the time when we would go to the city for a permit to have a block party in the park, they would give us all kinds of excuses why. And they wouldn't care if we just jammed up the streets. We were like, look, our kids deserve better than this. Hmm. Why can't we? So we learned this exercise. Hey take all of the kids up to city hall and um, council chambers for a city council meeting and let city council explain the 500 kids why you can't have a permit to have a block party in the, in the park. So once we did that standing room only in the middle of council chambers in the middle of summer with no air conditioning in council chambers, (laughs) we got our point across and I'm sure they didn't want, that to happen again. So we learned that process. And from there, you know, we had a community organization, a lot of politically community active people, and we just always supported them and engaged them from that point on. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Let's go back to 1987. You remember back then? You guys, yeah. you guys did, you guys were in a talent show. Yes. Um, the same crew, um, yes. under a different name, I think, though. The new style, yes. The new style. Same same sort of music, same sort of energy? Yeah, definitely. When we were, you know, we were in high school in 1987 is when we first got together for our first talent show. Uh, KG is one year older than Tretch and I, so he graduated in 1987. We were juniors that year, and Tretch and I were, uh, well, K was a senior, and Tretch and I were juniors. We didn't graduate until 1988. So, uh You know, prior to that, two years prior to that, in 85, we initially got together and we weren't really competing locally, but we were just getting to know each other. So I guess it was like 87 was the first time we decided to do that high school talent show for KG senior class. And at the time, you know, we come from the era where you would just perform in local clubs and 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 just show what you know without any records playing on the radio, without any music videos happening. And at the time for that first uh, talent show, we didn't even have a name for our group. So we just had routines. And for our routine, we scratched in at the beginning the Beastie Boys song, ever, ever, it's the new style. So yeah. once the show went over well... And all the dust settled. The next morning, we were like, wow, that was great. You know what? We need to call ourselves the new style. And that's the name we stuck with until 1990. That's so cool. That's awesome. How soon after winning that talent show did you guys say, hey, let's 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 take this as far as we can? Like, was there was there ever that conversation of let's we can make something happen out of this? Or was it like this is just something to keep you occupied? 
Yeah, well, you know, we always did it for the love of the culture and just to be mm-hmm. down. But when we did that first talent show, we realized we had something and, you know, we could get a rise out of the people. Yeah. So after that talent show, we began competing locally around town. So in particular, there was this club, Club 88. They had the ton tough teen talent competition. So we would always go there and compete and we always had a big following. So, you know, back then the crowd would judge who was the best. So it would probably be about seven other, eight other groups there. And the new style would always come in and win. So the other acts were saying, hey, new style brings so many people and, you know, they, they have bias. So they switched the rules and began <laughs> having judges judge these talent shows. Uh, and it was when we kept winning with judges, you know, uh, judging the talent show. That was the moment we said, you know what? We sort of mastered our backyard here in New Jersey. Perhaps we could take our talents over to New York, the epicenter of hip hop. And back then, if you weren't from the five boroughs in New York City, you may as well have been from Alabama or, or <laughs> somewhere as yeah. far as New York was concerned. So that's how they looked at Jersey Boys. So for us to pursue hip hop in New York, I remember getting booed right out of New York. So mm-hmm. that was a challenge. Because you weren't from there. Be- strictly because you weren't from there. If you yeah. weren't from the five boroughs, you couldn't be down with hip hop. That's crazy. When did you guys meet Queen Latifah? When did that happen? Um, we've always known Queen Latifah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I grew up on this block called North 15th Street. Queen Latifah's aunt, Annie Lane, was the uh, head of the block association there. So I've literally known Latifah since I was about seven, eight, nine years old. That's so, amazing. Um, yeah, and that was just casually in passing because she would come and visit her aunt. But, you know, back in the early 80s, early to mid 80s, all of the street kids were interested in hip hop and Latifah ended up with the flavor unit crew, Mark, the 45 King, Apache, Lakim Shabazz. And she was with, you know, that crew, the flavor unit crew. And she just happened to get on first in like 1989. She was signed to Tommy Boy Records and her first album came out. But we were both from the same hometown of East Orange, New Jersey. Yeah. So. When we decided as New Style to take it to the next level, we were aware Latifah, um, you know, was on already. So we pursued a flavor unit and we was like, hey, we have our crew. We have a following. Meet us at this gymnasium. We're going to show you what we do. So we were able to pack that gymnasium, rock out for flavor unit, gave them our demo. And that's when they decided to sign us to flavor unit management. How important was that for you, especially not being in not being in the New York City, being in Jersey and having someone at the caliber of Queen Latifah literally, you know, across the street, down the block? Was that was that a huge influence for you guys? Yes. As a matter of fact, you know, the Jersey hip hop scene was huge because, you know, just maybe 20 minutes away from us was the Sugar Hill Gang and Sugar Hill Records. So Sylvia Robinson and them, they were big. Uh, Bismarcky and Cool V at the time, they lived in Jersey. You know, Cool V is from Elizabeth, New Jersey. So the Bismarcky and and Cool V were our mentors, our hip hop mentors back then. And then all of us, you know, Redman, Lords of the Underground, Artifacts, uh, Wyclef, Prize, Lauren Hill, all of them, we all came up together um, just in the local hip-hop circuit. So for Latifah to sort of break out first 
And plus, she was from our hometown. It was easy access. So we were familiar with each other from the local scene. So it was definitely very important that we had those relationships and that access early on. So what what was it from that local scene that like even the names you mentioned, like it just like the influence that came out of there versus the five boroughs? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, what was it that was special about that scene? Well, I think all of us had a chip on our shoulders because we, <laughs> we were stepchildren when it came to hip hop. And it was just geographical discrimination, you know, yeah, yeah. just because you're from Jersey and you're not from the five boroughs, you're not authentic hip hop and you can't be down. You know, you're welcome to come and observe, but you're not down to participate. So we always had that chip on our shoulder as Jersey artists and Jersey MCs that we want to show New York City that we can be down and we're just as good as any of them over there. Yeah, that is crazy. Um, Yeah, all those names that Greg, you you just took me back to like university, university (laughs) days, right? And like 1991, my first year of university, that's when OPP came out. Yes. Um, how do you know that a, a a song is going to be like a hit? Like, did you know, like to this day, my son is 14. He has no right to know that song. You know what I mean? Right. right, um, he's, right. he's, you know, Travis Scott, maybe he knows that stuff, but right. like, even to this day, you know, that, that song resonates. Right. How, how, did you guys know what you guys were doing back then? Well, no, we didn't. You know, again, we come from the era of, again, without songs on the radio, without videos playing, we had to go into clubs and we had to have routines and we had to have crowd participation and that kind of engagement. So all of our routines were always call and response. It always included the crowd. And once we decided to go in the recording studio, we wanted to transfer those live elements into, you know, mm-hmm. the recording process. So mm-hmm. having you down with OPP, yeah, you know me, you down with OPP, yeah, you, it's call and response. We knew that the content or the subject matter of that song would be good, would be controversial, would be catchy. But the reality is the B side of OPP was a song called Wickedest Man Alive, which featured Queen Latifah. So it had more of a reggae feel to it. When it comes down to it, it had more of a street, you know, hip hop, DJ, mix mix show vibe to it. And Mm -hmm. actually, a lot of DJs started playing the B side first and they weren't really playing OPP. Ah. But it was, you know, Tommy Boy Records, their their marketing department, in particular their pop department, they were working it towards more crossover outlets and they picked up on that song. You know, it was friendly, it was catchy, it was more dance-like and the Michael Jackson ABC sample, you know, the Jackson 5 Mm -hmm. ABC sample gave it that commercial appeal. And next thing you know, you know, MTV picked up on it. It was Dr. Dre, Ed Lover, and Todd One. They flipped our song to uh, Down With MTV. And that <laughs> really took the song over the top. And it was on from there. That's crazy. The one thing, the one thing that I thought was interesting that Kareem mentioned about his son, you know, knowing the song. Like, when we look at, you know, our Canadian brother Chad, right, with, with Hip Hop Evolution, and, you know, the series, the songs of Shook America, you know, my son, my son who is in college took a course on hip hop as one of his courses. Right. It's like, it's like, there seems to be this hunger 
to, for particularly for a lot of younger people or people that didn't know the hip hop scene to learn more about it. You know what I mean? Like what you guys were experiencing and living back then. Right. Well, I think it's just uh, um, right now, you know, initially it was American culture, but yeah. right now it's world culture. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I think that this hip hop culture in its essence, it speaks to perhaps the inner city kid or the person who feels left out or, or misunderstood or not heard, you know? So I think for the rest of the world, looking in to the hip hop scene and the hip hop culture, it's like, hey, these kids were able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps when there was little or nothing. And they made it happen through arts, whether it was the breakdancing or the DJing or the beatboxing or the rap itself or the graffiti art. It's like, hey, if you're in the inner city, how can you not have something to do or never be bored. And I think when, you know, that culture exploded across the world, uh, you know, we go to Europe, you know how from Poland all the way through to Czechoslovakia and all of these people, you know, they feel the same way about their government. They feel Mm. misunderstood by their government and they want to get their attention. So a culture like hip hop, it's almost like you could place that culture anywhere on the planet and have the kids, you know, participate and pretty much get the same results. And I think that's why, because it's so global right now, people are really studying this culture. It's yeah. the universal culture. And wow, what were the origins of it? And I mm-hmm. think that's what's most intriguing uh, uh, for everyone, you yeah. know, interested in hip hop. Yeah, fascinating. How, how, how was it scary for you guys, like after the success of OPP? Um, were you guys scared in terms of the follow-up, like the follow-up album, subsequent albums? Go, oh my god, how the heck are we going to top this? Right. Um, you know, and then like five years later, was it Poverty's Paradise? Yes. And uh, and then uh, you know the song that we've been talking about a little bit, Hip Hop Parade comes out, and you guys win the right. first ever Grammy for rap album. Right. Right. Um, was was it between those two periods? Was did you, how did you guys feel? Was it just excitement and living off of the excitement, or was it how were we going to top this? How were we going to continue this? Well, I, I think you know, for us back in the day, again, we never thought of accolades, we never thought of money, we never thought of the big lifestyle that comes along with it. You know, we come from the early days of hip hop, 81, 82, 83, where it was all about skills, man. You had to have skills. And us coming from Jersey, it's like, listen, you better be good. You better be damn good in order to get New York to accept you or to like you, you know? So that was our purpose. That's what we put the blinders on for. And it was all about creative, being creative and having a hell of a skill set. So once we did come out with OPP and then everything's going to be all right. And then Uptown Anthem and, you know, we understood what our talents was. We understood how to get rhythm in the studio. So it wasn't about being nervous. We were like, Hey, now we're on. Now we know what we're doing. And we understand what kind of records, what kind of our records would resonate to our audience. So it was almost about learning what kind of records connect to our audience, understanding who our audience was and, you know, just embracing it and and moving. So that's what we were doing, because, you know, in the 90s, you had so many different styles of hip hop that 
Yeah. Some people were trying to be underground like Black Moon or like a Mob Deep or, mm-hmm. you know, there was so many people trying to keep it real. But for us, we had those underground street records, but we also had those feel good, melodic, chorusy records that would appeal to women. So we wouldn't worry about men. We got to keep it real and make sure we're making <laughs> records for the streets. We were like, hell no. We get a taste of, you know, crossover and mainstream from OPP. We didn't know that record would cross over. So that was an organic, you know, creative process. And we were like, look, we're going to stick to our guns, stick to our sound, our style. Whoever doesn't like it, I'm talking about our peer group, so be it. But, you know, that's what helped separate us from our peers. And we ended up carving out our own lane, even till this day. I mean, we could go from working with Ice Cube and Snoop Dogg to touring new kids on the block. A lot of artists can't do that. What was the collaborative process for you guys when you were writing some of those iconic albums and when you, and and even to today, like what do you guys are working on? Like, yeah, well, I mean, for us, we're, we're brothers, you know, we've always been around each other. And even when we were on the block, we were street kids. So just clowning on each other, playing the dozens, you know, people walking up and down the street are the members of our crew, you know, all of that engagement spawns creative ideas you know, I remember like with OPP, we had a guy move Brown when we were on the block. Of course, that's our block, our place of business. He's from a rival block. He would come around, I'm down with OPM, other people's money, you know, <laughs> like he's coming to get money on our block. He's like, nah, we down with OPP, other people's boop, and we'll take the girls, you know? So stuff like that and scenarios like that is how we came up and come up with different songs. So it'll start, and it's different. Sometimes KG will come with a beat. Sometimes the beat will come with a chorus on it based on who it is sampled. Sometimes it'll come from us clowning each other. You know, sometimes Tretch will come with a concept. I'll come with a concept. It's just like, you know, you're chefing it up, man, Mm -hmm. using all different ingredients. Yeah. You you mentioned earlier about... uh you know, not chasing the the prize, sort of being true to yourself, being true to your art. You've got a um, you've got a line in the song "Respect," which is from the, the relatively new forgotten quarantined archives. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and there's a line I I can't even read my writing, but I think it's um, don't do it for the check, do it for respect. Is that correct? Right, right. We don't do it for a check, man. We do it for respect. We don't do it for a check, man. You do it for respect. If you do it for a check, it just ain't the same effect. If you feel it in your blood, wave your hands and nod your head. Wave your hands and nod your head. Yes, yes. Yeah, and yeah. That's pretty much what I've been saying the whole time, you know. We didn't mm-hmm. do it for a check. We did it for skill and respect. Yeah, that, that is awesome. Um you know, you, you've, you've talked about uh, the, the other band members, um, you know, like any family, like any, you know, all brothers, there's, there's times when, um, you know, you're loving each other and there's times where, you know, you just like probably during this quarantine, you know, with there's fights in the hall, but I've had enough of you. I'm going to another room now, <laughs> right. you know, how, how are you guys now? I know, you know, back in the day there, there might've been some, uh, um, some times when you guys didn't always see eye to eye, but how are things now with you guys? Yeah, we're good right now. I mean, you know, I think with any relationship, you know, that stands the test of time, 
if it's not tested or if it's not challenged, perhaps it's not a real relationship. Mm. And you need those turbulent times. You need those questionable times to see where you really stand with each other. So I think every relationship, every marriage, you know, has to go through turbulent times in order to know that it's real. And I think that's the testament to Naughty by Nature. Like 2021, we're celebrating our 30th anniversary as Naughty by Nature. But when you count the new style and Naughty by Nature, it's really like 33 years. So when we look at it, it's like, literally over half our lives we've been together and unknowingly we dedicated our lives to ourselves. Unknowingly we created an international corporation and brand that, you know, it helps us feed our family and, and not only feed our family, but we feed a lot of other people and we inspire people all over the world. So it's like for some little snotty nose kitten, snotty nose kids from off Eastern the block, Earth, you're right <laughs> off the block, getting together at 13, 14 years old is not bad. That is awesome. Um, I want to go in that direction. You, you talked about uh, um, some of the some of the stuff you're doing on the business side of things. Um, were you guys one of the first to sort of merchandise? and focus on brand? Well, we we were early in it. There were other acts doing it. Um, Public Enemy has always had a strong brand. NWA had always had a strong brand. Uh, Run DMC always had a strong brand. Salt and Pepper with the Idol Makers back then when they had the Push It jackets and stuff like that. So hip hop in its essence has always been about branding. You know, when even in its early days, early New York City, early 80s, everyone ran around with the name of their crew and their posse on their hats, always had jackets, T-shirts, airbrushed, you know, uh, jackets and jeans. People always branded themselves. But when we came along uh, and we worked with Tommy Boy Records to develop, you know, the Naughty by Nature logo, Tommy Boy actually made the first down with OPP T-shirts, stickers, and uh, boxer shorts. But since as the new style, we always invested in ourselves, we just picked up right with it and decided to take it to the next level. As well, we learned, you know, our first major tour was with Public Enemy. So in speaking with Chuck D, Flavor Flav and the S1Ws, we learned that they ran their own merchandise and they ran their own mail order operation. And a lot of their guys and road crew, when they came home, they would concentrate more on the merchandise and, you know, keep that going and fulfill orders. So we looked at that and was like, wow, we could do the same thing with our crew when we come off tour. Then we consulted Easy e you know, when he broke up with, with Dr. Dre and them, he came and we were working with him, which is why he's in the Hip Hop Array video. Um, I asked him, I got a chance to ask him, hey, Easy, I always saw like NWA always had the uh, merchandise pullouts in your cassettes and CDs. What is that all about? He's like, oh, we just have a company. They give us a upfront licensing fee and they basically work it out with the label and, you know, we get royalties from it. I was like, well, you know, I feel that we can invest in our own inventory. We went to Tommy Boy Records and say, you guys have to put our merchandise in our sleeves. And we figured we're selling 2 million, 3 million records or, or cassettes and CDs. If that if we're doing that kind of consumption, if the return is 10%, we'll be good. And I was yeah. like, 
we'll invest in that inventory and then we'll have our people do the fulfillment. Then it just, you know, evolved into um, Spike Lee. He always had his 40 acres and a mule, you know, merchandise in the 90s. He was doing Do the Right Thing in the Malcolm X movie. He had a store called Spike's Joint right in the heart of, you know, downtown Brooklyn. So we had two people from East Orange, New Jersey, went to high school with us, LaShawn Coleman and Hassan Mateen. They actually worked at Spike's Joint. So I would pick their brains and say, hey, how are they doing that? And even talking to Spike himself, and Jeff Tweedy was running that store at the time. Jeff runs Sean John right now. So just picking their brains and be like, listen, we invest in inventory. It's an owner-operator business. We put the inventory here. We're in the heart of the community. We, you know, show and, and we're an example of the community and you come and support. So we were like, you know what? We're going to do the same thing. We invested in ourselves. We put up our first Naughty Gear retail store and we figured, hey, we'll have people from the neighborhood work in the store. And then people, when they go on tour with us, when they come off the road, they still have a place to work. And that's what we chose to do. So that's again- awesome. We were one of the first ones to go that hard with it, but we definitely learned from our forefathers. Yeah, yeah. It, I know, it's interesting I, you said, because you talked about from, from you know, that, that brand has always been part of it. And it dawned on me to think of so many iconic people that came out of hip hop that are driving brands. And I'm not just talking music, like, like full on business brands compared to other subsets within the music industry. It's interesting. I just... Yeah, well, and we call it that hip-hop hustle, you know, because Mm, I think for hip-hop and, you know, hip-hop, for one, has never been respected as a music genre, you know, when it comes to the labels, when it comes to the award shows and all of this stuff. And it translates even into business when it comes to different licensing deals, perhaps the same company who would do Rolling Stones or Metallica or just a... uh, um, a band that's on par with a hip hop band. Those bills would be like five times larger than a hip hop equivalent band, you know? So Mm -hmm. with hip hop, you know, people would try to exploit you. I remember people would come to us when we were red hot selling 3 million records, 3 million albums. Hey, we want to just give you some goods to wear and wear them in your video. We're like, no, well, Let's do a real deal. Oh, we don't yeah. do real deals like that. You know, it's got to be with an athlete or it has to be with some actors like, well, what the hell is wrong with us? You know, we, yeah. we people hear our records all the time. If anything, gross impressions, we're embedded in, in more people's face than these people you would do deals with. And it's sort of forced us to invest in ourselves and invest in our own brands. And you take guys like Kanye West, same thing would happen with him. He went and worked out with Louis Vuitton. Then he ended up going to Nike. Nike is saying, yeah, you come with Ye West. We'll do this Yeezy sneaker for you, but we're only going to do one run, a short run. And then we're going to own that brand. And then once we, you know, discontinue our relationship with you, we have the right to put that sneaker out and you don't even get royalties. Hmm. He's like, what kind of shit is this? So he raised hell and people think Kanye is, you know, crazy, but it's like, no, it's fair business practices. You strictly don't respect hip hop, period. And now he parlayed that relationship into Adidas. 
And as of the other day, he's tweeting, hey, I'm a billionaire three times over. Yeah, and that's hip hop hustle. What Jay Z is doing with Rock Nation, what Pharrell and them is doing with Bathe and Ape, and so on and so forth. It's like it's that hip hop hustle that we were forced to do it. And again, if you look at other music genres, we out hustle those artists a million to one. And yeah. I think part of it is because you know these labels in corporate America they'll open up the checkbook. They'll open up the resources to some of these mainstream pop or rock bands where they're not pressed to have to take these actions. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's better for us long-term because we're literally owning owning multi-billion dollar businesses. Yeah, true, true. Can you tell that story, you guys, you know, when you started doing this merch thing with Tommy Boy, they sort of... uh wanted to do their own thing and not sort of give you the full props. So with, tell, tell, there's a story with like snakes and rats or something. Yeah. So what happened was, again, <laughs> when we spoke with Eazy-E about how they got their inserts in the cassettes and CDs, he told yeah. us, right? He said, hey, we take an advance, you know, from, from uh, the company and they work it out with, with the label. So I'm assuming that the label charges them to put the insert in. So we were like, all right, well, that's your business model. For us, we're going in because we're going to invest in our own inventory. We don't want an advance from a third-party company. And since we're doing business with the label, we're going to the label and saying, it's our album. You're going to put this insert in and we're going to invest in our inventory and do our thing. You have the lion's share on the record side. We have everything on the merch side. So when we went and approached them, they said, fine, no problem. But once they released that album, which was the 1993 album, our second album, when it came to accounting, they tried to charge us three to five cents per insert. So when you look at the math, we're selling almost three million albums. They're going to go back and try to charge us three to five cents per um, album. That was never a part of the deal. So we had to correct that. You know what? You never discussed that up front. You know, it's never, it's not even in any paperwork. So how the hell do you figure you're charging us three to five cents per album? That's some snake and rat shit. And Tretch at the time, Tommy Boy's offices were right above a pet store. Tretch went in that store and bought every mouse, every hamster, every snake, every garden snake, took it upstairs, busting the door like you snakes and rats and let them all out. <laughs> That's hip hop. That's right. They're right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, e-commerce, huge. You, how did you guys first hook up with, uh, with my boy, Greg, up here in Canada? Right. So with Greg, um, there was a time where, for one, I've had, uh, when we opened our retail store, we opened it in 1994. And around 1996, um, I did my first website. I had NaughtyByNature.com. I had NaughtyGear.com. And at the time, no one was spending money over uh, credit cards over the internet. And I remember our store, NaughtyGear.com, we had a printout, which was like a virtual or, or the next level of how you print out the, uh, how you do the cassettes and CDs. Yeah. So 
I always understood www, which is World Wide Web, dot naughty by nature dot com. So in 86, I'm like, wow, you know what? World Wide Web, this means you get to have your own television channel broadcast to the world. You don't have to go to CBS, ABC, any of these guys. The Internet will connect you to the world. So I was like, wow, this is something I'm interested in. And then when it came to NaughtyGear.com, I'm like, well, instead of, you know, our our uh, reach or our customer base would be the 2 million people buying our cassettes. Now, because of WorldWideWeb.NaughtyGear.com, anyone who finds this website, they don't have to have the album. All they need to do is find the website and then they could print out the order form, same order form that's in the cassettes and CDs, look at what we have, check off what they want, put a check and money order in and send it in to us. So that's how we started, like snail mail. So as we move from 86 to, I mean, 96 to 97, 98, that was the age of when MySpace was coming along. And then you had Facebook coming along and you got in the age of apps, you know? So I always understood apps. I'm like, wow, now they have these smartphones. And, you know, if you have your own app, people will come right there. It's like a digital fan base. You could be real intimate with your fan base. And at the time I was using Windows Mobile. So that was like Windows (laughs) Mobile 6.1 and I was going all the way up to 6.5. And I had a guy put me on the Android platform. He was like, yo, Vin, you know, you got to get up on Android. That's the next wave. That's the new platform. And I never liked Apple, you know, iOS or whatever it is back, whatever it was back then, because you couldn't copy and paste Uh, Windows Mobile. They always had the stylus and me as just running my business. It was, you know, just had more features on Windows Mobile. And when you go to the, the iPhone, it was just, ah, but Android was like a go between the both of them. You know, so it was like it had the features of Windows Mobile and it had the UI of like, you know, of of Apple. So I was like, bet I'm introduced to the platform and I got uh, up on the apps. So I remember doing a call out. I was like on on Twitter because we just started our Twitter account. I did a call out. Hey, I'm on Android and I'm looking for an Android app developer. Anyone knows? So there was some fan. He was like. You need to get at my guy, Pixel Addict. Yeah. And that's how I met Greg. So Jeez. I picked that up wow. off of Twitter. I hit Greg up. And I was like, yo, bro, I need an app. I need a mobile app. And our first um, app we did was an ebook. So at the time, we were coming up on like a 20th anniversary. And I was like, an ebook. So we mapped it out. And then I remember going on, um, what is it, like the Google Papers we were sharing? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah all of the notes back and forth. Uh, and, you know, we mapped out what the app would be and we did a first ebook. So I went to a photographer, um, Ernie Panacoli, got a gang of, uh, gang of uh, photos and I took them from day one up to where we were and kind of gave them an ebook story. So there were the pictures, I voiced over every picture. Then we had the text of my voiceover to every picture and it gave you this whole interactive ebook. That's amazing. <laughs> and and now he's running your your store online. Yeah, he's running my store. And then the next step we did um, Google TV. We did a Google TV app. So that was just our whole ecosystem. We built that out, 
And then um, next thing you know, I ended up working with them to do my whole e-commerce for what I'm doing right now. And we've been kicking butt, man, kicking butt. That is crazy. That is, that is hustle. And like, I'm forgetting like Ill Town Sluggers, that's the record label? Yeah, so that's this right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. new entity that KG and I own. KG is our DJ and producer. And um, he's always had a record label, uh, Ill Town Records, all three of us owned. Then he spun off and did his Divine Mill record label, which was heavily on the R&B side. And then, you know, the game kind of changed and production deals uh, uh, weren't as readily available. Everything is more about the digital age now. So KG and I decided to hook up and, um, you know, do a new record label. And and it's all digitally driven. And actually, this came about because we had a Russian collaborator who created this uh, character with us. So... You know, we use all of our resources from all over the world. But basically, we came with this character. We named him Slugger. We named the record label um, Slugger Music. And we're putting out tons of new artists. Uh, Greg will be working on the e-com side. We have another team, Jamal Landlord, Menza and them. Uh, We have a white label situation with Create Music. And we're running a total uh, digital label imprint right now. Look at you guys. From... from the block <laughs> right. in New Jersey. Right. And it's like you're taking over the, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like you look back like 30 years. Do you, do you ever pinch yourself? You know, as you're in the morning, you're shaving or you brush your teeth, you look in the mirror and go, what the heck have I done? I know. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of like you don't look side to side along the way. You don't look to pat yourself in the back. The reality is, is that, the entertainment industry, the music industry, hell, the whole world, banking, finance, e-commerce, all of this stuff is moving so fast that you really need to pay attention. And no, we're not formally trained in any of this. We didn't go to school and with this. So for us, we not only do we have to pay attention, we have to be smart enough to seek out guys like Greg and people with these, you know, formal skill sets to help guide us along and to help keep us ahead of the curve or at least on par with the curve. But with guys like Greg and AK, you know, Al Karim, Nasir that's up there, these guys help us stay ahead of the curve and, and just anticipate what's next. And it really does pay off because now that, uh, you know, this COVID thing is happening and the world is shut down. I was just explaining to KG. I'm like, look at how lucky we are. For one, we got this great look with Rita Wilson, remixing Hip Hop Parade, blessed in that. For two, we're coming right behind it with Donnie Wahlberg, new, uh, new Kids on the Block, Boys the Men, and all of this stuff happening. But for three... We've been working with Greg for the longest, but we relaunched our online shop in November of 2017. So since this COVID, it's like our sales increased even more. But then, Kay, when you look at it, a lot of artists who were signed to the labels were complaining before this COVID pandemic and everything got shut down. Now that everything is shut down, the major labels are shutting down. They're not clearing any budgets for these artists. You have so many artists complaining, ah, and these were artists were red hot March 1st. You yeah, know, yeah. now yeah. they're all shut down. I'm like, but Kay, look at what we're able to do. We're totally independent. We have our own credit line. We're independently financed. We can move at our pace. And while those guys are suppressed, look at this 
ancillary, you know, look we're getting, the ancillary free press we're getting, we get to come right behind it with our new girl, Nicole Michelle. We get to drop the quarantine files. We get to drop more new music and play in the space that no one else could play or a lot of artists can't play. We're totally independent and we're free. So that independence and that self being self-sufficient, we understand how important that is right now. Yeah, yeah. What do you what do you what are you seeing what are you seeing coming out of this whole experience that excites you? I mean, outside of what you guys are working on, like Yeah, well, what do I see out of it is that everything is the owner operator business, you know, and because everything has been shut down, there's so many sectors, you know, uh, uh, affected by it. So many jobs that are lost and will never come back, but it's the people who have invested in themselves and invested in the new technology who are going to benefit the most, you know? So as you know, everything is shut down now, but as we open back up and they implement new elements and, and just, new things into this new normal we're going to have, people who invested back then will be able to incorporate these new elements into mm-hmm. what they're doing and advantage is us. Yeah. And, and, yeah. The, and the new opportunities, right? Like I know, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the wine business and there's, there's new opportunities that are being opened up for us out of the changing in the regulations. Right, right. Definitely. And yeah. I see more independence in direct yeah. consumer, you know, so yeah. there's less middlemen in the middle. Yeah. Period. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you're you're one that's always sort of been looking at what's next, whether that is, oh, what's this Internet? How is it going to help me? You know, MySpace, Facebook, uh, mobile apps, uh, digital TV. Um, what are, are you I'm not asking you for any state secrets? But um, is there something that you're looking at that's the next sort of iteration of the brand? Um, I believe at this point, I'm definitely paying attention to the financial transactions, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's crypto, they're talking about, you know, uh, uh, digital fiat currency backed by the U.S. dollar so it can remain, you know, the world currency or whatever. So I'm paying attention to more e-commerce, you know, the direct-to-fan engagement, the broader reach of it, and how to, you know, interact with the entire globe, not just the U.S. or Canada. You know, there's the whole South American continent, the African continent, even getting into deeper into Europe and China and all of this stuff. I'm just looking to spread the playing field and that financial or that e-commerce transaction. How do you make that more direct the fan and and less middlemen in between that? financially yeah. with, with, with the banking. So I'm paying attention to that and just making sure that we're able to keep our core content, you know, coming in the terms of mm-hmm. music, music videos, having all of our artists, including ourselves, keep a healthy social media presence, uh, more television and film, just s- spreading our portfolio so we have more content out there. And then that'll give us the chance to play the direct the fan e-commerce on top of that. Yeah, true. I I spend a lot of 
a lot of my time in my day job looking at uh, gaming and esports. Um, I'm curious if you had a chance to wrap your head around what uh, Travis Scott did a few days ago with um, with that uh, Fortnite and Twitch. Yeah. Yeah, that that was incredible. Um, you know, Greg puts me up on that. I have another guy who uh, does all of my fulfillment. He's a big gamer and he's like, Vin, you have to pay attention to that. That's a huge, you know, sector over there, man. That, it's really, really big. So I've never been a gamer because I never liked playing video games, but I do understand how big that is. And yeah. again, keeping guys like Greg on my team, He's like, Vin, you have to pay attention to that. And I just think in that world, it lends itself to our character, Slugger. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we are paying attention to that and, and doing the, that investigating right now. Yeah. I, th- I think I know the answer to this, but I want to sort of ask you this, and you probably have already talked about it. Why have you guys lasted? Why is Naughty by Nature... Why, why are you still in the conversation 30, 35 years later? I know, man. I, 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 I try to figure it out myself because when you look at it, we only have about six albums we release. So that's an average of like five albums <laughs> a year. You know, our first three were with Tommy. Boy. Five years, yeah. Fourth one, Nature's Fury was with Arista. Tretch and I did one alone, uh, the TVT album. I don't even count that. We came back together and did Anthem Inc. That's six albums. And, you know, I really only count four of them because internal shit was going on. Yeah, back. yeah, yeah. So in all of this time, I mean, I just think the music we created, you know, um, touched a lot of people. I think our three different personalities, you know, kept it interesting. Tretch is one hell of a character. I think the fact that I've always been on the front lines, especially just as simple as having NaughtyByNature.com, NaughtyGear.com in 1996 and 97 and keeping a digital presence out there. I think uh, the fact that, you know, we continue to have a healthy touring business um, we do what we can to just stay afloat. And then we keep getting these incredible looks, you know, just like right now. I, I told KG the other day, I'm like, can you believe the entire world was shut down? And then out of nowhere, Rita Wilson comes and goes viral singing hip hop array. I'm like crazy. The man up above loves us, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it could have been any other group. It could have been any other song, but why us? You know? Yeah. <laughs> that is so true. Is there, is there any, um, in the hip hop world, whether it's, you know, you, uh, I think you mentioned, what's her name? Nicole? Nicole Michelle. Nicole. Um, who, who's, who's up and coming in your world? Um, well, we have a slew of artists, you know, uh, coming out. We have Nicole Michelle, Ryan Lane, a kid named Freshco, another guy named K.O. I mean, our our team, and that's really K's passion. He loves developing artists. He loves developing new artists, you know. Yeah. K isn't the one to say, oh, I'm going to produce for Rihanna or Beyonce or this one or that one. K's passion is developing brand new artists and breaking them. And now I think that, you know, he and I partnered up with this management and, and you know, record label uh, with the marketing prowess, with his, you know, production and musical genius and with our support team around us, 
man, we're, we're really cooking with oil right now. So <laughs> really, it's, it's all about it's all about the artists we're, we're putting out and just, you know, working on breaking them and establishing them. Yeah, I recognize, be- recognizing that the 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 roster you have in place. Aside from that, what's what are you listening to lately? What's in your ears? Not not much. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm I'm a very passive listener. You know, okay. whatever comes across my ear and I hear the next thing, and I'm probably the most trendiest listener out there. <laughs> period. You know, because I I think I pay more attention to just our ecosystem and what we're doing. I think KG is more of the music guy. He listens to all the new albums that come out and everything. So, you know, that that's sort of his lane. Yeah. I like to, you know, pay more attention to what's happening in business trends and how the industry is adapting to this. Like I just shoot off a bunch of uh, articles from the ASCAP newsletter. They talk about why radio isn't seeing growth and, you know, all of these people are doing live streams now from DJing to artists doing free concerts. There's a lot of sync licenses and a lot of stuff being left off the table and a lot of language that's being evolved and developed that's going to become law, you know? So Hmm. I'm I'm paying more attention to that, that end of it. Tretch is never, Tretch is, uh, you said he's like an interesting character. Um, He's got a lot of vink. He's never sort of dragged you into a, into a tattoo parlor yet. No, no, that's not my thing. I was never into tattoos, but he's ha- he has enough for all three of us. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, uh, Vin, I, I know you're busy. Um, you're, this has been an amazing chat. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. All right. No problem. Thanks for having me. Guys. Appreciate your time. And listen, be- before you go, I- I'm sorry, before you go, Tell people if, if they want to find out more, if they want to consume more naughty culture, where online should they be going? Right. Hey, I'll keep it simple for you. Go to naughtybynature.com and from there you'll find everything. All of our social media located there, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, our naughtybynaturestore.com is there. And hey, we're here. We're easy to find, naughtybynature.com. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time, buddy. Yes. All right. Thank stay, you. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Likewise, likewise.